There you go. There you go, front row. Well done. All right, Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. Why not? Ladies and gentlemen, we are so glad you are here. It is summer. And once you fill those 40 slots, the Erie family need another 40 slots just to take care of the three Erie children who are staying up too late. And Seth, our youngest, uh, five and a half, his new favorite thing is to strip off all of his clothes, yell naked, and jump in the pool, even though he doesn't swim very well. So that's been fun. That has been fun. Yep. Some of the dads are thinking, well, what's the point of having a pool if you can't just jump in like that? So um, Luke chapter six. Now, how great was it to have Dale and Becky Burke back if you've been a part of our church? Love that. And then... That was great. And then the week before, Austin from Austin uh, was giving us a little bit of Sabbath. So, so he introduced us to two Sabbath controversies. I'm going to focus on the second one. I want you to remember, we've encountered the Pharisees. We've talked about the Pharisees. How the Pharisees' project really was to seek renewal, the renewal of Israel through, two, through holiness. And holiness was defined in two ways. One, positively, as Torah observance. And so they intensified commitment and adherence to the 613 laws by adding a bunch to keep you from breaking the don't touch the table rule. They would add a whole bunch of not even looking at the table rules, but also through separation. That's how they were known. That was the name of their party. Pharisee meant separated one. And the idea was uh, that, that Sabbath was one of those um, boundary markers in first century Judaism that maintained Jewish identity and distinctness. And so Jesus, of course, naturally run afouls of their, uh, runs afoul, excuse me, of their interpretation of Sabbath. So, Luke chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, right hand was the dominant hand back in the day, right hand was authority, right hand was the social hand. Uh, and if he was in any way a manual laborer, to lose his right hand meant he could not have a vocation. It was also thought that you would have a withered hand because, and this was the later rabbinical teaching, you had been reaching for something sinful. So in the Old Testament, there was an Old Testament king, Jeroboam, I believe it was, who was reaching inappropriately for the kingship. God withered his hand. And so uh, the teaching was if you had a withered hand, it was either your sin or the sin of your parents reaching for something sinful. So the man's here. He's obviously got not only the shriveled hand piece, but there's the social judgment on top of it. Now, the Pharisees taught uh, that... You could do no work on the Sabbath. That was the biblical command in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. But the ever helpful rabbis and teachers of the law added 39 different categories of work. All right, so the command was do no work. The natural question is, well, what's it mean to do work? And they, 39 different categories with tons of subcategories. All right, one of the categories of not working was healing. So the issue was, If somebody's life was in immediate danger, you could heal on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you could not because healing was work on the Sabbath and you couldn't work. So here's Jesus. He's in a synagogue and a man with a withered right hand is there. Verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they observed him closely. Jesus, of course, is now well known in the region. God is clearly moving through him. But to the Pharisees' minds, Jesus 
is breaking Torah. He's not, he's not participating in the Pharisee project of holiness the way they understand it. And they're beginning now, Luke in this whole section is showing us conflicts. So we showed conflicts about around who Jesus eats with, conflicts around who Jesus touches. Now we're going to have a conflict over what Jesus does on the Sabbath. Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, here's what's interesting. The man doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus knows the Pharisees are watching him to see if he will heal. And so Jesus, ever meek and mild, decides to pick a fight. Right? We have this image of Jesus where he's carrying the baby lamb around, you know, and he's kind of a dressed up Mr. Rogers, and he's just so kind. He's putting on a sweater when he's teaching, and he takes the sweater off when he's done, you know? The problem is nobody crucifies Mr. Rogers, of course, and so there's this dimension of Jesus that we don't often talk about, where Jesus here is going to pick a fight with the religious leaders. He knows they're scrutinizing him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath, so he finds a man with a shriveled hand, and he says... Get up and stand in front of everyone. So is Jesus looking to be antagonistic here? Yeah, absolutely. The, man, the man's healing could wait. His life wasn't in danger. So Jesus finds somebody whose healing can wait and says, nope, going to do it now. Then Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, hey, let me boil the whole Sabbath thing down. I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill. But they remained silent. Now, flip over the parallel. There's a parallel to this story. Mark tells the story, but add something right at this moment. Flip over to Mark chapter 3. Something really interesting here. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Same story. It's implied in Luke, but Mark makes it explicit. Mark 1. Mark 3, verse 4, is what I was saying. (laughs) Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Now notice this next line. He looked around at them in what? In anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, a political party, how they might kill Jesus. Okay, that seems like a bit disproportionate, right? He heals a man with a withered hand, and now they're going to kill him. But I want you to understand what Jesus has done here. We're in a synagogue service. Pharisees teach the man with a withered hand can wait to be healed. They're not against his healing. It's just don't do it on the Sabbath. Jesus knows this. Picks the man, says, stand up in front of everybody. And he asks the Pharisees the very legitimate question. All right, let's let's boil down Sabbath laws. Let's get rid of the 39 categories. Let's just ask, is it okay to save life on the Sabbath? They don't say anything. So he looks at them in anger. Now, there are two different, there are a couple of of Greek words for anger. One is orge, one is thumos. Orge is a settled antagonism towards something. Thumos is the passionate eruption of rage. Orge is the one that's used here. 
And it's the idea that Jesus has a settled disposition against the unrepentant hearts of the Pharisees who will not even engage with him about the man with the shriveled hand. Now, I have anger, right? We're familiar with anger. Anger is really interesting because it's always righteous from the perspective of the person who's angry. Would you agree? (laughs) Always righteous. I've not yet met one person who in the moment doesn't think theirs is not righteous anger, right? I mean, of course. And anger is so interesting because it's like nuclear fusion for the soul. I mean, you can be dead tired and have someone cut you off in traffic. And then there's just more energy than you know what to do with. You could be totally exhausted and have your spouse say something a bit cutting. And all of a sudden, you got energy, right? It's, or is this just me? I mean, you guys are all quiet now. I mean, so, so I've done so many dumb things when I'm ticked off. So th- there was one time years, and years ago, we were leaving youth soccer. Nothing like youth soccer to be awesome. And to see inappropriate anger on display. So we're leaving you soccer. We're at a stoplight. Out of the parking lot, turning on to Harbor Boulevard in Costa Mesa. Light turns green. Wife normally punches it the minute it's green. If you're behind her and you let a fourth of a second go by, she's giving you a little toot-toot, right? If she's behind you and you haven't moved yet, I mean, she's, she's gunning this thing. Normally that's what she does. But for whatever reason, that morning... She, she, her foot, foot misses the gas or she just pauses for a second. And I just turn to her to say, honey, why aren't you going? When we estimate between 50 and 60 miles an hour, a, a big old truck barreled through the intersection going the other direction. We no doubt would have been killed had my wife pulled out like she normally would have. No doubt. Instead of being thankful that our life has been spared, yours truly decides to go chase down the truck. So on that particular Saturday morning, you would have seen a large man in flip-flops running very slowly down a truck that was at a light turning left about half a block away. And I'm chucking down here. Now, it occurs to me, when I'm, I don't know, I'm approaching at gazelle-like speed, of course, It occurs to me, I don't have the slightest idea what I'm doing right now. I just knew I was so angry, I wanted to go punch the truck. I was so angry. And so so I'm chucking at this truck. And don't judge me. Don't judge me. Look at you. Don't even, don't judge me. Your own judgment condemns you, because you've done dumb stuff too. Oh, but I'm a pastor. Oh, it's all perfect. Oh. So I'm chucking down Harbor Boulevard. And it occurs to me, I got no plan. I don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go punch somebody, but I was so angry. My wife, so I just stop running. <laughs> I just stop. I just stop. What am I doing? My wife pulls up, rolls down the window in the minivan. She says, so what exactly was your plan there? What, what were you, what's going on? But the thing that was so interesting is instantly, right, I was so angry because I felt like my family's life had just been put in jeopardy because of someone else's stupidity. So, so, I mean, it's nuclear fission, right? There is this thing that is in all of us. We all know what it feels like. We all know what it is like to be that energized. The problem is we spend it on the things that just don't matter. So, Jesus is angry. 
the question becomes, what does his anger lead him to do? What does he do? What does he do? He heals the man. So Jesus' anger, at least in this specific instance, leads to healing and restoration. What does your anger lead to? What does mine lead to? Judgment, condemnation, violence, either imagined or real. Conversations that I replay over and over and over again, wishing I'd said something different. So what's so interesting is we have this image of Jesus, meek and mild, and certainly that's true, but part of his mildness was the fact that he got angry at things. Go, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Another example. I just want to look at the things that Jesus gets angry at and contrast them with the things I get angry at and see if maybe there's a difference. Mark chapter 10. Verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus. For him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked the little children and the people bringing them. Now, for us, little children are precious in Jesus' sight. They're little precious moments. You know, Jesus blessing the children. Okay, back then, children were worthless. Why? Well, you'd lose several of them as you would have them. The mortality rate was so high. But also, until they were able to help you around the house or the farm or whatever... They were just a drain on resources. So children were just adults in waiting. And they weren't worthy of much religious instruction, at least in that part of the Galilee. Other places, yes, you'd be training children from the moment they could walk in Torah. And and some synagogues would do that. But children weren't highly valued. So the disciples, thinking to protect Jesus from this, they rebuke the people trying to bring the children to Jesus. When Jesus saw this, he was what? Indignant. Anger mixed with grief. Now, isn't that interesting? So the disciples, the very people who should have known better, were warring against the people trying to bring children to be blessed. Jesus is angry. Pharisees who would rather see a man wait another day to have his hand healed for the sake of their Sabbath traditions... Jesus looks at them in anger. Go, if you would, back to Luke chapter 11. I think that many of us are always looking for a fight because we're not already in one that matters. And so I look at the things that Jesus gets angry at. I just want to argue there's a place for anger in the Christian life. Paul even says, be angry yet do not sin. He quotes from one of the Psalms. There's a sense in which We need to channel the nuclear fuel. What does Jesus' anger lead him to do? To heal. And to welcome those who weren't highly valued. Now, oh man, (laughs) this is awesome. Luke 11, verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him. Does Jesus say yes to free meals? Yes. Jesus and I share, I'm Christ-like in that way. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, do you remember, we talked about table fellowship three weeks ago. 
The washing didn't have to do with hygiene, moms. The washing had to do with ritual purity. For the Pharisees, how you ate the meal, what the meal represented, who you ate with, all of that was emblematic of the Pharisees' project of holiness, of renewing Israel through being holy. So part of what they did is they took the rules for eating that applied to the priesthood in Leviticus and applied it to everybody. Now Jesus doesn't see it that way, so he doesn't ritually wash his hands. The Pharisee notices this, and so Jesus, ever kindly, decides to take this time to share a few opinions about the Pharisee's project. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees! You give God a tenth of the tiniest herbs at your table, your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees! You love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves who make people unclean, which people walk over without knowing it. Oh, I'm sure the host was very happy he'd invited Jesus over for dinner that night. (laughs) Now, one of the teachers of the law happens to open his mouth. Verse 45, one of the teachers of the law said, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Woe to you, experts of the law! Right? Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Wow. So what makes Jesus angry? They'd rather see a man with a withered hand stay withered, than disobey their Sabbath traditions. His disciples, restricting children, he's indignant. And the Pharisees, who have missed the point, and settle for external religious observance rather than love of God and love of neighbor. And Jesus pronounces, whoa. See, the things that make Jesus angry are things like compassion, justice, generosity. The things that make me angry are things like traffic delays, bad service at a restaurant, Worship-style arguments, right? We're looking for a fight. We're an outraged society. Outraged at just the stupidest things. One last one. Jesus, Jesus in Luke 19. This is his most famous. Luke 19. This is his most famous display. Verse 45. And we have so much more to cover. This is literally point one. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Now, John tells us, how did he drive them out? He fashioned a whip. And he's overturning tables that have money on them. And he's driving out the animals used for sacrifice. So it's hard to carry a baby lamb around your shoulders and do that at the same time. Would you agree? 
It is written, Jesus said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then the religious leaders begin to plot how to kill him. So, Jesus gets angry. Not like we get angry, of course. Not the flying off the handle, irrational, disproportionate sort of thing we do. But a settled disposition against what? Hypocrisy? Injustice? Not being compassionate? Separating love of God from love of neighbor? And in this way, Jesus sounds a lot like his father. Do you agree? Bless you. Go to Isaiah 1. See, we see this part of Jesus, and it's just like his dad. Jesus is the image of his father. So you go to places like Isaiah 1, where God's angry with his people. But what's he angry at? Well, he's angry at their sin, at their rebellion, yep. But he's also angry at the way that they separate love of God and love of neighbor. Isaiah chapter 1. Now this is written to Israel. (laughs) Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So Sodom and Gomorrah were kind of like the examples of what you don't want to be in the Old Testament. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, the sacrifices he commanded, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. No, he commanded all of this stuff. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. How'd you like to hear that as the people of God? When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Now what's got him so angry? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, they adhered to all the religious forms showing love of God, but they didn't do any of the love of neighbor. And God just simply says, well, I I don't want your religious forms then. Not interested. Go to Isaiah 58. Here God critiques the fasting that his people do. So when Jesus is flipping over tables and indignant his disciples and woeing the Pharisees, I mean, it's just, he's just reflecting the heart of his father. Isaiah 58, verse 2. Speaking of the descendants of Jacob, hey, day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed, God? God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only one day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? 
Is this what you call a fast today acceptable to the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I've chosen. To loose the chains of injustice and tie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Flip over just one more. Amos. (laughs) What? Amos chapter 5. I had a bunch more passages we could look at, but for time's sake. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. And if you're looking at a table of contents, that is totally acceptable. (laughs) Verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Even though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. But let justice roll like a river, like a never-ending stream. So, what makes God angry? Love of neighbor divorced from love of God. Issues of justice, compassion. What makes Jesus angry? When people would rather cling to their religious rules than show compassion to a man with a withered hand. When people assume that Jesus has no interest or time in blessing those that are deemed kind of unworthy of those things by the culture, even his disciples. When Jesus sees people whose concept of holiness is so far from the heart of God, he just woes to them. And when Jesus sees that the house that bears his Father's name has been corrupt makes a whip, and turns over tables. And just that brief tour through the Old Testament, that's just showing that that's the heart of the Father. See, when we talk about the anger of God, you've got to resist two extremes. One extreme is to think that God is just simply Mr. Rogers, but nicer. And that's not quite right. But neither is God this red-faced, angry, sandwich board-wearing, picketing, like, shouter, God hates you, God, either. What does Jesus' anger cause him to do? To die for the very people who are crucifying him. What does the Father's anger cause him to do? To send his one and only Son. So how's our, our anger stack up? Not only does our anger be applied at things that are of just menial significance, but does our anger ever lead to healing? Or to restoration? See, maybe one of the questions we should be asking each other as we try to discern God's will for our lives is what makes you angry? I decided to go to seminary because I was angry. I was watching a political talk show in the 90s, Bill Maher. Some of you remember that. He was on regular TV at that point. He'd had a couple of Christians on the show and not bagging at all on the Christians, but he was saying things like, yeah, the Gospels are forgeries written, you know, years and years and years after the events, and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and da 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 da. And these Christians that were there were great, but they didn't have anything to say to that. They just would talk about how they felt Jesus kind of in their hearts, and that's awesome. 
But I was just learning about all of the reasons why you can trust this. And I got so angry at that moment. That was the moment I decided to come out here, get an MA in philosophy of religion and ethics out here. So that if anybody ever shoved a microphone in my face, I would have something to say. Or after 9-11, when we had some of our Christian leaders say some things that were not Jesus-like, I was angry. And so I decided to be the kind of person in private and to do the hard work in private so that if anybody ever shoved a microphone in my face, I would want to sound a little bit like Jesus. We have a little boy that has Down syndrome. We found out that there's a whole movement afoot to eradicate those kinds of individuals from our society, either in the womb and to abort them or to deny any incentive to bring those kind of kids into the world. And so what does our anger cause us to do? Well, we just show him off. He comes to the 9.30, 11 o'clock service. Sometimes we let him dance just up here, interrupt everybody. Poor Justin will be up trying to lead worship and Seth's trying to crawl up on stage. And do you know why we do it? How impoverished would we be if he were not here? I mean, you just go, there's a lot to be angry about. But so little of it captures God's people. We'd rather argue over worship styles and service times and coffee bars. We'd rather argue over what somebody's wearing. I mean, it's, I just think Jesus, if he were here, would just turn over some things. Not out of, uh, hey, you guys are damned. He, there's no condemnation for those in Jesus. But just to say, hey, wake up. You're spending the nuclear fuel on things that are so unworthy of your attention. Like whatever that is. Right? I mean, there's just a sense that so many of us, so many of us are looking for a fight because we're not in one. Right? And we're not talking about being angry and that leading to condemnation or destruction. We're talking about being angry and leading to restoration and to justice and to generosity. You know, when there are 2,400 foster kids in the Orange County foster care system, somebody care about that? When there are 44% of senior adults who have no one to look after them, do we care about that? Right, do we, do we care that sex trafficking in America is taking root in our backyards. Do we care? And again, no guilt. I'm just saying. Let's put it in perspective when it comes to traffic lights and bad service in restaurants, right? I don't know how this hits you. It just takes a two-by-four up to my head. Because I know what my anger leads to. And I know what yours does too. And we don't need any more of it. What we need though are some prophetic folks so captured by the anger of God. Now, the minute I use that phrase, I have to disclaim it. Because you understand in the Bible, God's anger is good news. Do you understand that? It is God's absolute intolerance of anything that does not align with his kingdom. 
It is his anger that ensures. Would you rather a God who could look at what Hitler did and be okay? Or would you rather worship a God who hates that with every fiber of his being? Would you rather worship a God that just says, hey guys, it's your mess. Good luck. Or would you rather worship a God who is actively engaging in resisting the evil and darkness in our world? Would you rather worship a God that just simply says, yeah, it's cool, guys, whatever you want to do. Would you rather worship a God who simply says, there will come a point in human history where there will be enough. No more murder, no more violence, no more greed, no more rape, no more lust, no more trafficking, no more poverty, no more disease. We're done. Every tear will be wiped away from every eye, and God's people will receive new bodies to live in a new heavens and a new earth with him forever. See, we just don't understand how wrath and love fit together, but any parent, I think, gets a glimpse. Imagine you have a child being devoured from leukemia. Don't you hate the disease that would eat away at your child? Is it because you love your child that you hate the disease? Of course. Your anger isn't in spite of love, it's because of love. And so... We're a people that celebrate a crucifixion and say that that's the place where wrath and love collide, mercy and justice collide. We take Lord's Supper. We take the bread and the cup. What are we celebrating? Well, we're celebrating God's anger and his love at all that wars against the beautiful creation he has made. So, We thought it fitting today to take the Lord's Supper together in response. To recognize that, yeah, we're all imperfect. Yeah, we're all angry at dumb things. But maybe just to get a little different perspective this morning of what God's heart looks like and what his anger leads to. So close your eyes, if you would, for a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus... As the communion team passes out the elements, we invite you to take a piece of the unleavened bread and a cup of the juice and to just sit in stillness and awareness of what it is we're actually doing, what it is we're actually celebrating. We repent, we confess, we celebrate, we remember. We recognize that God who has begun a good work, will bring it to completion. And as his people, we are privileged to be the advance of that ahead of time. And so, Father, we confess we are people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts and clean hearts. We are people, God, who forget the things that capture your heart apathetic towards them and yet the things that impinge on our individual rights all will fight so help us Father to harness to repurpose to realign this nuclear fuel in our souls towards something worthy Father fill us with your Holy Spirit as we take the bread and the cup meet with us bring us to the place God again and again where we see how beautiful majestic you are Pour out your spirit, we pray. Amen.